Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to John chapter 13. We're finishing up chapter 13 of John. I'll just add my voice uh, to the others that have already said it. Welcome back, college students. We're super glad you're here. Freshmen, I hope that you found your classes first week. And uh, seniors, I hope that you got the motivation to actually go to your classes the first week. So, um, man, we're so glad you're back. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here at Candale. My wife and I moved to Cedar Falls about seven years ago. And uh, we moved into our house and uh, pretty much immediately like dropped all our stuff down and then went on vacation. Um, and so, cause we moved in the summertime and it was vacation season and that's just kind of how it worked for us. Well, we heard that a bunch of storms had gone through Cedar Falls while we were gone. So we called up a few of our friends that we had just made here in Cedar Falls and said, hey, could you go uh, check on our house? Like, we don't know this house. We don't know what happens when it rains, honestly. So they went and lo and behold, uh, everything wasn't okay, actually, because our basement was flooded and we are gone on vacation. Now, our friends were really, really gracious to us. They cleaned things up and uh, yeah, they were like, hey, we, we don't know what happened, we, but things are cleaned up when you get home. So immediately when I get home, I all of a sudden have a project to do, right? And it wasn't a project I was anticipating. And so uh, when your basement floods, you know, the first thing that I had been told to check was, hey, just go check your gutters. So I get up on our roof and come to find out, there were, our gutters were so full, I could have started like a small hobby farm, like on the edges of my root, like with actual fruits and vegetables. I could have put like a goat up there, you know? It'd been awesome. I probably should have tried that. So, but I cleaned them out and it looked like they hadn't been cleaned for like two years, right? And what's, what was particularly frustrating about that was that our house is not, it's not hard to clean the gutters at our house. We don't have a two-story house. We don't live in a mansion, you know? It's like, I can reach the gutters. I can almost reach the gutters from standing on my deck, like without a ladder. I mean, it is, our house is short. And not only that, our house, our roof is incredibly flat. It's like the flattest roof on, on our block. You, know, you, you could sleep on our roof and not roll off. Like you'd be totally fine, right? So it's not difficult to clean the gutters in our house. There's nothing about it that makes it a particularly difficult task. But isn't it true that sometimes the biggest issues that we face actually come from neglecting the most basic things? The biggest issues come from neglecting the most basic things. Don't clean out your gutters, you have water in your basement. Uh, Don't change your furnace filter, you'll probably be a little cold when February comes because your furnace will have burned itself up, right? Like don't change your car's oil, your engine blows up. I mean, these things aren't particularly difficult. They're fairly obvious. They're kind of right in front of you. But if you neglect them, even the most basic things, they can cause tremendous issues. And what we have here at the end of John 13 are two things that are an enormous deal in the lives of believers, should be an enormous deal in the lives of believers. Two things that Jesus tells his disciples that if we neglect these two things as his disciples, they will cause some of the biggest issues in the Christian life. Two things. So look at me, look at John 13 with me, and we'll see these two issues. So John 13 verses 31 and 32 is where we'll start out. 
When he had left, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, when it says, when he had left, what it's referring to is Judas. Judas had just left the room. And what we know from, uh, from a few verses earlier that we saw last week, that when Judas left the room, it was his full intention to go and betray Jesus. And so as the door closes behind Judas, the clock is ticking on Jesus's life. And when the clock is ticking on your life, you don't talk about trivial things. Maybe you've sat by the bed of someone who is in their final moments on this earth. You know that in those final moments, you don't talk about trivial things. You don't talk about the weather. You don't talk about sports. That when, it, when the clock is ticking on someone's life, you talk about things that matter. Because when the time is short, the words are weighty, aren't they? And so the clock is ticking and right away, Jesus uses this word glory or glorified five times in two verses. A, a quick tip when you're, when you're reading your Bible that if you see words repeated over and over to stop and go, why in the world would the author have repeated these words? I mean, this was, paper and ink was not exactly a, 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 an inexpensive thing when this was written. And so there's a reason why the authors are saying these words multiple times. And what Jesus is saying is that it's in his suffering on the cross that his glory and the glory of the Father will be put on full display. That's what he's talking about. When Jesus is talking about glory, he's saying his suffering on the cross is what will put on full display his glory and the glory of the Father. So the first thing that Jesus wants his disciples to see and that he wants us to see is the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross. Now, if you've been in church, you know, for a little while, you've, you've maybe heard this word glory used a lot. Believe it or not, we've actually sung about glory twice already this morning. I don't know if you noticed. We use this word glory a lot, but what in the world is glory? Now, some things are, are relatively easy to explain, right? Like, so if someone walked up to you and said, uh, and asked you, say, said, what is a soccer ball? You'd probably have a framework for that, right? You'd go like, well, it's, it's about this big. It's round. It's full of air. It's usually black and white. And if you really knew soccer balls, you'd go like, well, it has some pentagons and hexagons kind of mixed in. Right? You'd be able to like describe it pretty, pretty accurately. But other things aren't quite as easy to describe. Like if someone came up to you and asked you to describe salty, maybe you can even taste it right out. You're like, oh, salty. Or you're like, uh, someone who has never tasted salt, never tasted the, the taste of something being salty, and they said, describe salty. You'd be like, uh, salty? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, I can tell you what it's not. Here, try, try these cupcakes. That's, that's what it's not. Now try these chips. That's what it is. Like, you'd, you'd kind of be like, at a loss to know exactly how to precisely describe you. Like, I, I can kind of give you an idea. See, God's glory is kind of like that. So what is God's glory? Here, here's my attempt to define God's glory. This isn't like the, the be-all, end-all, you know, definition of glory, but here's at least a running attempt because we want to understand what God's glory is in order to understand why Jesus is showing his disciples the glory of the cross. So here's my, here's my definition. God's glory is his infinite beauty, value, and holiness 
put on display. And those last three words are really, really important. It's not just his infinite beauty, value, and holiness. It's his infinite beauty, value, and holiness put on display for all to see. You say, where do you get that? I get that from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It'll be up on the screen. It says this. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. And you would expect him to say, his holiness, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his holiness, but he doesn't say that. He says the whole earth is full of his glory. The holiness of God, his total perfection in every way possible, put on display for all to see. And what Jesus is saying here is that this glory this infinite beauty, this infinite value, this infinite holiness is going to be put on display, not in parades and celebrations, but in his suffering on the cross. Now that has to lead us to ask the question, how in the world, how in the world can that be? When you think of the cross, you don't think of something beautiful. When you think of the cross, you don't think of something valuable. Like in the cross, like if, whole, if, if glory is supposed to be overwhelming beauty, what we have in the cross is overwhelming agony. If in the cross we're supposed to see overwhelming power, or if in glory we're supposed to see that, in the cross we see overwhelming weakness. If glory is supposed to be overwhelming holiness, what we see in the suffering of the Son of God in the cross is overwhelming sin as humans who were created nail to the cross their creator. So how in the world can the horror of the cross be the very thing that displays the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son? How can that be? What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? It's because on the cross, God's glory isn't just an abstract concept, but a tangible reality. That in the cross, it isn't just like we know these things about God, but in Jesus Christ on the cross, we see those things put on display. It's one thing to say that God is love. It's one thing to say that God is just. It's one thing to say that God is holy. But it, it's, it's a totally different thing to see this perfect love on display while, undeserve, while undeserving sinners receive unmerited grace. It's a totally different thing. It's one thing to say that God is just, but then to see on the cross God satisfying his justice. God satisfying the law's demands through the only one who is able to pay to meet those demands. It's one thing to say that God is holy. It's, a, it's another thing for the holy one to be rejected and killed so that sinners could be accepted and adopted as sons and daughters. 
See, what Jesus is saying is that there, there has never been and there will never be a greater display of his glory than in his suffering on the cross. And here's what this means for us. It means a lot of things. This certainly means a lot of things, but it means at least that Christians who understand the glory of the cross will never look at suffering the same way again. That when you see that Jesus Christ and his suffering on the cross says that this is the means by which he will display his glory, that you will also not look at your suffering the same way ever again. That because Jesus' suffering on the cross wasn't meaningless, but it was accomplishing the purposes for which God had purposed from the beginning, namely the salvation of you and me. That because Jesus' suffering wasn't meaningless, that your suffering isn't meaningless either. That your suffering, in fact, has a purpose. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you will never see it. But you know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That doesn't mean that all things are good, right? I was, I was sitting at sidecar with my daughter. We were reading Romans chapter 8. And we were talking about how, what does it mean that God works all things together for good? And I looked at the monster cookie in front of her. And I said, I said well, check this out. So are uh, M&Ms good? She goes, yeah. I go, are just like plain oats good? She goes, well, no. Is salt by itself good? No. Is sugar good? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, see what, what it means when the Bible says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, what it means is that though each individual ingredient in your life may not in and of itself be good, that God as the divine chef is taking everything in your life and mixing it together into a glorious monster cookie. <laughs> and you may never see it. You may never taste it. But you can know that for all the pain and for all the hurt, that you experience in this life, that the bitterness of this life is producing within you a greater sensitivity to the sweetness of Christ. That heaven will taste all the sweeter for earth having been so sour. Do you see the glory of the cross? Do you see the glory of the suffering son of God on your behalf? taking abstract truths about who God is and making them a tangible reality in full display. Do you see the glory of the cross? But Jesus doesn't just show them the glory of the cross because the glory of the cross, when we see that, it should lead to something. And that something is the mark of a Christian. So number one, the glory of the cross. Number two, Jesus shows them the mark of a Christian. Look at verse 33. says, children, I'm with you a little longer, a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus is doing something fairly interesting here because at first glance, this command doesn't actually look all that new. He says, he says I, I give you a new command, but, but if, if you knew the Hebrew Bible, if you knew the Old Testament like his disciples would have, you would know that all the way back in Leviticus, it had already been written, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you could go, Jesus, did you forget? Did you forget about back there, how, how is this new? 
What is so new about this new command? Notice this. He doesn't just say love one another. They had heard that before. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. He doesn't just say that. That's not a new command. Here's what makes this command new. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. He's saying, you've never seen a love like this. You've never seen a love like this. The world has never seen a love like this. This kind of sacrificial love across difference, love across status. I mean, remember just two weeks ago, this is all in the same thing. Like the floor is probably still wet from Jesus having washed their feet. He's saying like, you've never seen this kind of love. It's a new command because it's based on a new example. It's a new command because it's based on a new example. Love one another just as I have loved you. And what will happen when we do that? Verse 35, by this, when you love one another just as I have loved you, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why is this important? It's because just two verses earlier in verse 33, he tells his disciples, where I'm going, you can't come. Like Jesus is about to leave this world. You see, when Jesus was walking here on earth, if you wanted to know who his disciples were, you just go find where Jesus is at and then kind of look behind him or look around him, right? Like who are his disciples? Well, just find where he's physically at and see who's physically around him. Well, now Jesus is saying, I am no longer physically going to be here with you. And so now, how in the world is anyone supposed to know who's G who Jesus' followers are? Since they can't physically see Jesus and they can't physically see you walking around Jesus. How will the world know who Jesus' disciples are? By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the way that everyone will know that I am real the way that everyone will know that my supernatural power lives within you, the way that everyone will know that this saving, powerful message of the gospel is true, the way that they will know that is if you love one another. This kind of love across difference. Jesus is so different than us, yet he kneels to wash our feet. This kind of love at the expense of yourself kind of love. It's this kind of love that people will know that you're my disciples. You see, before you, be, before you become a Christian, generally what happens is that you define the core of who you are. The core of your identity you define it in a variety of ways. Some, some people define the core of their identity as their ethnicity. Some people define the core of their identity as their educational status, call me doctor. Some people define the core of their identity by their social status, by their kind of rank relative to other people. Some people find the core of their identity in your family status. It seems more and more the core of their identity in their politics. But when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, something more foundational comes in. 
and displaces all those other things that would be the core of your identity, that would be the top of how you describe who you are, the fundamental basis of who you are. When you become a Christian, your core identity is changed. Now, this isn't to say that when you become a Christian, all those, all those other things just dissolve. is isn't that they just like go away, but being a Christian doesn't erase those things, but it certainly demotes them. Which means that now, because you are a Christian, because the nucleus of your identity has been changed as in Christ, that when you meet someone with different politics, when you meet someone with different cultural values, when you meet someone with different education, when, when you meet someone who has a different social status, economic status, but you're both Christians, this means that you are to have a bond, that you have a bond that is deeper and tighter than any of those other things. And therefore, you are to have a commitment to them that is categorically different than when you didn't have the bond of Christ. This means that you will listen to them differently. You will care for them differently. You will meet their needs. You will care about their needs and their well-being differently because you have a connection that runs deeper than preferences. You have a connection that runs deeper than opinions. You have, you have a connection that runs deeper than blood itself. You see what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the way that everyone will know and the way that you will know if you are my disciple is if you love one another. How will anyone know that you're my disciple? And if you're wondering, if you're a disciple, how will you know? Look at the way you love other Christians. Look at the way you love his church. See, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. It's not the friend of Christ. It's not the acquaintance of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. And to say that you love Jesus, but want nothing to do with his church is like, would be like you coming to me saying, you love me, but want nothing to do with my wife. You know, that's probably not gonna work. We're a package deal, right? You see, not loving the church because it isn't perfect would be like not loving my wife because she isn't perfect. So I, I just wanna be real with you for a second here. So as one of the elders uh, here at Candeo, God is, man, I, we would need more than like eight more minutes to talk about the, <laughs> the thousands of ways God has been good to us as a church. Like it, we, we constantly use the metaphor, like it feels like we're, we got like, like a Dixie cup, you know, one of those little ones that they put like three, you know, goldfish crackers in for snacks at preschool. We feel like that, and, but we're standing under a waterfall, you know, like trying to just, <laughs> like God's grace is just overflowing on this church. Like it is amazing what God has been doing. Like to say that God is moving in this place would be like the understatement of the year, okay? So I, I have to put that at the front end of this because at the same time, honestly, the, the last year and a half, has been really difficult. It's been really difficult. Uh, over the last year and a half, 
many of the conversations that we have had as elders, uh, may, maybe you don't know what we talk about in our elder meetings, uh, a large majority of it over this last year and a half has been shepherding conversations. Has been how to shepherd various situations where people are upset with one another or are upset with, with our church over things like politics or masks or vaccines or racial issues. or I mean, just go down the list, right? In the last year, I have sat eyeball to eyeball across the table from people who have looked at me and said, listen, if I find out that anyone in my connection group voted for Trump, I'm out. And I've seen it, and you probably have too, where people who claim to be Christians are just obliterating other people, either, either specifically or just generally, who hold various views on various things, support different political candidates, just blasting them on social media. With, 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 uh, by the way, uh, black, like, don't, don't have digital courage. Like, don't put on social media what you wouldn't actually say to their face, okay? We've had people leave Candeo because they thought that our masking policies were too strict. And at the same time, people leave Candeo because they thought that our masking policies were too loose. Like at the same time, I go, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> We've had people leave because they're upset that we haven't talked about certain topics as much as they would like from the various views of creationism to different views of the end times. You see, here's what's true. What you believe is at the core of who you are will determine what you do and don't fight for. What you believe is at the core of who you are will determine what you do and don't fight for, what you do and don't defend. But here's the thing, and I wanna I want be like really crystal clear about this, that when we allow when we allow things, like, and these can even be important things. I'm not saying politics is important. I'm not saying race issues aren't important. I'm not saying that mass and vaccine, I'm not saying any of that is unimportant. But what I'm saying is, is that when we allow these things to become the dividing lines that we draw between each other, then two things happen. Number one is we directly disobey Jesus' command to, want, to love one another. He says this. He says, I give you a new command. Like we as Christians are those under authority. This isn't a suggestion Jesus is giving. This is a command that he expects us as disciples to follow. And when we, when, when we divide about non-gospel issues, we are first directly disobeying Jesus' command to love one another just as he has loved us generously, patiently, graciously, sacrificially. But number two is that our witness is also totally discredited. So we disobey, but then we also discredit our witness. That when an outside world looks in and sees fellow believers fighting about these things, it doesn't look that different than the rest of the world. And they say, well, if that's how they act, then the Jesus they claim to worship and the gospel they try to proclaim must not be that big of a deal if it has so little bearing on the way that they treat one another. Church, let me be very clear. 
we will not divide over non-gospel issues, period. Because before you're a conservative, you're a Christian. Before you're a progressive, you're a Christian. Before you are the color of your skin, you're a Christian. Before you are from your country of origin, you are longing for the new heavens and the new earth. Before you're a teacher, before you're an engineer, before you're a parent, before you're a son, before you're a daughter, you are a Christian. I know this is gonna sound like heresy, especially in the Cedar Valley, but this means that your commitment and allegiance to your spiritual family should be just as deep, in fact, deeper than your commitment and allegiance to your earthly family. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 is teaching and his disciples come to him and say, uh, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside for you. They wanna talk to you. And he turns and he says, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then he turns to his disciples and he points to them. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, Jesus isn't throwing his family under the bus. Like he isn't like just, you know, doing away with the nuclear family, the extended family. He's not saying like, hey, like ignore your grandma. But what he's doing is he's reprioritizing it. He's putting the priority of your earthly family in its proper place. Because he's saying your earthly family, as great as it is, is temporary. But your spiritual family is eternal. And he's saying that when you're a Christian, your commitment to your spiritual family, your commitment to other Christians is more important than even your commitment to your mother, your father, your brother, and your sister. Which means that your commitment to a church family isn't optional. Which means that if you're going to leave a church, you need to do that as if you were leaving a family. And in the same way, just as some families are incredibly dysfunctional, have a lot of issues, churches can be the exact same way. And sure, there may be appropriate times to leave a church. I'm not saying that you are like locked in, you're trapped in whatever church you've just first walked into. But what I am saying is that when you are considering leaving a church family, you need to take that as seriously as you would if you're gonna leave your actual earthly family. You see, if, 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 if you're like, if grandma doesn't cook you your favorite meal at Thanksgiving, you're not like, peace out grandma, see you never, <laughs> right? You just don't do that. Why in the world would we do that for our church family? Now, some of you might say, Jake, I hear you, I hear you talking about commitment to your church family. Like I'm here, aren't I? Like I'm here, right? It's been a great service. I showed up. It's actually hard to get here. I know that. You got kids especially, like A plus for getting here, okay? I totally see the value in that. Now, don't, don't hear me diminishing that at all, right? But what Jesus doesn't say is show up to a large corporate gathering and remain as anonymous as possible. And in this way, everyone will know that you are my disciples. <laughs> he doesn't say that. 
You see, if we're going to love one another, we actually need to know and be known by one another. If we're gonna sacrifice and serve for one another, we need to serve and be served by one another. We, we have to actually know one another in such a way that we can actually see the differences that exist between each other. Like it's really easy to maintain, to maintain this kind of like superficial at arm's length, like, ah, there's not really a whole lot different about us. But when you actually know someone, you begin to really see those differences. And that, in that moment is when this love across difference, love at the expense of myself, sacrificial, gracious, patient kind of love can then be put on display. Cause it's not easy. Cause it's not obvious. Because now I know that person in such a way that I can see just, just how incredibly different they are and how much we actually disagree about. But because of, our, because of our commitment to and bond through the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm committed to that person. Because we're not united because of our preferences. We're not united because of our opinions. We are united because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I'll be committed to them. And in order to do that, you have to actually know them and be known by them. See, don't be content to slip into the shadows here. It is, it is, it is very, very easy in, a, in larger churches especially to just kind of show up, sit in the shadows, not engage, and be like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm part of that church. Don't be content to slip into the shadows. Don't be content to remain anonymous. Don't be content to hide behind the numbers that are here on a Sunday morning. Commit to a church family. Because it's in this bearing with one another, self-sacrificial, how can I love you across our differences? It's in this kind of love that everyone will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You see the glory of the cross. Check, check it, this is so cool. The glory of the cross will lead us to have the mark of a Christian. Because how can you not look at the glory of the cross and go, oh my word, God has, God has loved us in this way. God has sacrificed us for this way. Jesus Christ has knelt to serve us, has died and risen again on our behalf. When you see the glory of the cross, how could I not help but love, but love those who are different than me? Within the body of Christ, the glory of the cross will lead to the mark of a Christian. But check this out. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you bear the mark of the Christian, it will show everyone the glory of the cross. In this way, everyone will know that you're my disciples. And in this way, everyone will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because it's the blood of Jesus. How does this happen? because the blood of Jesus will be the only explanation for how people who are so different can love each other so much. Because it won't make any sense otherwise. How in the world? They're so different. How can they love each other so much? It must be because of this message. It must be because of this person that they talk about so much, they sing about so much, that they worship so much. See, church, be sure that you're choosing the right fights. Be sure that you're choosing the right fights. And see the glory of the cross. See the glory of the cross. See how Jesus has loved you and love one another in the same way. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray.
Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We glorify your name. We put on display your infinite beauty and value. Lord, would it be true of us? Holy Spirit, would you create within us a desire for unity and love that before and more than we fight about anything else, that we fight for this, that we fight for love amongst one another, that we fight for unity amongst one another, that we display this love across difference in such a way that is so countercultural, that is so otherworldly. Oh God, help us to be a church defined by these things. Help us to glorify your name for all to see. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.